Please your Bibles again. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Our attention tonight is going to fall on verses 14 through to verse 18. So we'll read that together again this evening. Let's take the time to read these verses. Romans 9, verses 14 through to the end of verse 18. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, that even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Amen. This is God's word. May he be pleased to bless the public reading of it for his name's sake. Let's pray, pray together. Let's bow together again in prayer, and we'll call upon the Lord. Eternal God and Father, we come humbly in the recognition that there are things in these verses that are ultimately beyond our comprehension. There are things that challenge our hearts and our minds. I pray, O Lord, tonight that each and every one in this gathering would know the unusual help of the Spirit of God to carefully think through the verses to understand what they mean, and then make that proper application of the word to their souls. Eternal God, it's a solemn thing to come before your word. I feel the responsibility in preaching. I don't want, O Lord, in any way to communicate things that are not true regarding thee and thine eternal will. Help me to be faithful to the scriptures and guard the hearts of your people. O Lord, we pray you'd help them to consider every word. They not miss a few minutes here or there and then lose the connection of thought, but help them to concentrate through the message. And again, that we would see the Lord Jesus in this. We praise and glorify our Savior, the one who brings compassion to men. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. To this point, we have considered in Romans 9 that Paul is addressing the issue of what about those Jewish people who rejected their Messiah? What does it mean? Such privilege, and yet they rejected the one who came unto his own. Indeed, Paul's burden is that those people may conclude that the word of God, the promise of God, the purpose of God has failed in some way. Verse number 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. And as Paul begins to explain this, he begins to open up the thought of God's sovereignty in saving a spiritual seed in national Israel. Paul is essentially saying to all of us, there is nothing new in the fact that only some Jews have accepted the promise of God. There have been those throughout history of the seed of Abraham and of the seed of Isaac who have not by faith, believe the promises of God. They are those who had the blood of Abraham in their veins, but did not have the faith of Abraham in their hearts. 
And so they are those throughout all history who were Jewish by ethnicity, but not truly Jewish by faith. Nationally, the children of God in one sense, but not spiritually. And so you have verse number 6 there, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now when in verse 7, Paul mentions, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Of course, he's quoting the text in Genesis. But he's not even there suggesting that all Isaac's children were indeed converted in that sense. He's making the point, though, that there is a seed within Israel out of Abraham, and that's just spiritual seed. He's drawing comparison between Isaac and Ishmael. And so when it comes to Rebekah and Isaac, again, they have two children. One chosen of God, and the other hated of God. And so God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, chose Jacob and not Esau. And there were some in the physical lineage of Abraham who did not know the God of Abraham. Again, they shared Abraham's genetic makeup, but not his graces. This choice, the sovereign choice of God, was not based upon their identity, nor on their activity. Their identity, as the children of Abraham, did not secure their spiritual privileges. That's still the case. Whatever your background, whoever your parents are, they do not secure the blessing of God upon your soul. Not upon identity, and not upon their activity. Again, verse 11 is so clear. The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works. It's not of him that runneth, as we see later on down in verse number 16. It is of God that calleth. Not who they were, not what they had, and not what they would do. Humanly speaking, though, as Paul argues on down through these verses, it does raise this question. Is God righteous? Is he righteous and fair in choosing some and not others? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? I guess not my intention tonight, but it is worth noting that this book of Romans in many ways is written to explain the righteousness of God in the gospel. Remember, that's Romans chapter 1. The gospel is a part of God and the salvation. Why? Because it is a revelation of the righteousness of God. How God justly saves sinners. And so if this charge sticks, it really pulls apart the fabric of the gospel that Paul is preaching. He's emphasizing that in every aspect, the mercy that God shows is a just mercy. Because Christ pays the price of sin and Christ obeys the law, securing a perfect righteousness in our justification. And so, see the significance of this question. Not only is it a question regarding God's fairness, it has the potential to undermine the very gospel. If God is unrighteous in this, if God is unfair in any way, unjust in any way, then there is no gospel. That's how important this passage is. You misinterpret this, you misapply this, and you leave yourself with a gospel that is not God's gospel. God's gospel is perfectly righteous. Now, I accept, humanly speaking, this is a very natural question. 
It comes to all of our minds. You discuss these matters with anybody who denies the doctrine of unconditional election, and they will bring this question to you. They all will. It's part of man's natural understanding of this. If you present the doctrine properly, they will say, well, how is that fair? You know, the, the child of God, we ask ourselves that question. Why was I made to hear when others made that wretched choice and rather starve than come? We understand that within ourselves. Why me? And so those who hear the doctrine of election, they say, well, why anybody? Why some and not others? Now, what you see then, what follows in verse 15 and following, is a spirit-inspired response to the charge of God's unfairness. It's a response that's inspired by the Holy Ghost. And so you'll see in your outline tonight, I've given you just a very brief outline of tonight's message. There are two, two points of tonight's sermon. One will take about three minutes to preach, and the other will take about half an hour. Maybe not quite, but thereabouts. The first one is very, very straightforward. As Paul, under inspiration, responds to this charge of unfairness, he makes an emphatic denial. Verse number 14, God forbid. That's actually enough. Now, of course, it's not enough because God gives us more. But in one sense, the emphatic denial, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, ends the discussion. What we get beyond that is God's grace in explaining in more detail as to why the denial is so emphatic. Now, the, the God forbid, again, we, we saw this before in chapter 6, it is a King James Versionism. It's how the old English has translated a very strong negative in the original. We could have words like, may it never be, or certainly not. But the language used here is very, very emphatic in the old English. The way they put it was, God forbid. Now, there is a time for this. There's a time for us to call out people for their unbelief. Is there unrighteousness with God? That's a ludicrous question. Of course there is not. And yet we engage ourselves in discussion with unbelievers and in some who profess to know the Lord and we engage in this discussion with them when really all we need to say is God is God. And God cannot act in an ungodly fashion. There is no action of God that is inconsistent with his character. A just God cannot act unjustly. A holy God cannot act in an unholy way. A righteous God can never act in unrighteousness. That again would destroy the very Godhood of God. And so there is a time for this emphatic denial. Simply saying, hold your mouth. And Paul will get to that point, won't he, when it gets down to verse number 20? Enough's enough. Who art thou that reply us against God? So there is this emphatic denial. But secondly note, this denial is a proven denial. And it's proven in two different ways. There are two references here to the Old Testament Scriptures. You've got verse number 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have compassion. And then verse 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh. And so you'll see in your outline, when Paul begins to prove this denial, he does so by referring to the people in the wilderness. And then secondly, by referring to the Pharaoh of Egypt. We're going to look at both of those. 
First of all, then, what about the people in the wilderness? This, of course, is the time of Moses. And what Paul is saying here is, is there unrighteousness of God? No, because God is sovereign in the dispensing of his mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. What he's saying is that it is God's sovereign prerogative to show mercy. That mercy, by definition, is never deserved. And mercy is always in the hand of the one who can show that mercy. Mercy is never obligated in one sense. It is always part of the sovereignty of the one who shows that mercy. Now, he shows that by referring to the language of Exodus chapter 33. So let's, let's turn back to Exodus 33. Because verse 15 is a quotation of Exodus 33 and the verse 19. Exodus 33 and the verse number 19. The Lord has appeared again before Moses. You've got it there in verse number 19. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. There's a promise that will appear before him in chapter 34. I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So part of God's self-revelation to Moses is a display of the sovereignty of his mercy. Now to understand this, we've got to think of the context here. What's happening in these chapters? Well, golden calf and idolatry. You go back to chapter 32 and you will see God's assessment of the idolatry of the people of God who mealed the golden calf and Moses on the mount. Exodus 32 and the verse number 10. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Again, we're we're not going to deal with every detail of this chapter, but I'm showing to you the people of God had acted in such a way that they had brought the wrath of God upon them for their sin. And what is more the case, this wrath is upon all the people. Look across to verse number 3. See, when it comes to Aaron and the suggestion regarding the golden earrings, uh, verse number 2, verse 3 says, And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. The language again is, is, is emphatic in terms of the universal agreement with this action. We're in this together. Let's do what Aaron said, and we'll all buy into this. Every family, every head of the home, they're all buying into this idea of getting the earrings off their wives and their sons and their daughters, and they're all going to put them all into the pots. And hey, presto, out comes the golden calf. They're all guilty. They all deserve the wrath of God. And so verse number 10, when it says, that God's wrath waxes hot against the people. It waxes hot against all the people. They're all guilty of this gross idolatry. Violating the first table of the law that Moses just received in Mount Sinai. So, you get to verse number 28 of chapter 32. What do you see? And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. 
Now, there are those who estimate that in the people of God at this time after the Exodus, there may have been as many as one million souls, out of which 3,000 lose their life in the wrath of God. That's the setting here. And the setting is of the sovereign prerogative of God to show mercy to 1 million minus 3,000. So when Moses then deals with God, and God is then going to show himself to Moses, part of God's purpose and prerogative in showing himself to Moses is to emphasize his sovereignty in showing mercy to those whom he shows mercy. So the conclusion of this reference, Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, is then taken by Paul, Remember, in the context of God's sovereignty in choosing Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, God's sovereignty is shown in that God is sovereignly able and has sole prerogative to show mercy. But as he shows that mercy, he shows the mercy to those who do not deserve that mercy and who have not earned that mercy. In a moment in time, in the wilderness, God had the divine sovereign right to rescue some, to rescue many, out of a multitude who all deserve the judgment and wrath of God. All deserve God's wrath. God sovereignly chose to show mercy. I'm not going to do the math to 1 million minus 3,000. It's a remarkable display of God's sovereign mercy. And Paul takes that moment to reveal the character of God and deny the claim of God being unjust. That's what he's doing. Back to chapter 9. He's answering this question. Is there unrighteousness with God? And he's saying no, because God sovereignly shows mercy. Humanity and sin all deserve God's wrath. But in electing love, some receive mercy. All deserve judgment. But some receive compassion. And so the lost who die in their sin, they die receiving justice. So the charge of God being unjust is immediately denied by the fact that God is sovereign and showing mercy. All those who die, die in Adam, die due to sin. They die justly. They die under condemnation justly. And those who live, they are recipients of God's sovereign mercy. Now, we might ask the question, why some and not more or not all? I understand that. And the next example addresses that question. Pharaoh will deal with that question in our minds. But before that, please let me emphasize that God is not unjust in choosing some out of a lost humanity to live in and through the work of Christ Jesus. Now, the majority of Reformed theology over the centuries has viewed election in this way. Some sovereignly shown mercy out of a lost humanity when others are left in their sin. That position, and again, I'm going to give you the word because some of you are into these things, it's known as infralapsarianism. It's a big word. It simply means that God chose people to salvation 
considering all of humanity has fallen. So first they're seen as fallen, and then they're chosen for salvation as and out of that fallen race of humanity. Now the other view, uh, again, exalts God's sovereignty. There are proof texts for it. This is not, uh, if you like, a final discussion of the argument. It's bigger than that, and it's not my purpose tonight. But I want to show you the confession of faith that we use that teaches this particular position when it comes to divine election. And so I put it, I put it in the bulletin for you, at least the relevant section of our Confession of Faith, chapter 3 and the paragraph number 7. Because having highlighted in chapter 3 in the decrees of God, highlighting God's work and election and choosing some unto eternal glory, chapter 3, paragraph 7 says this, the rest of mankind. In other words, Mankind viewed as fallen. There are those who are chosen to Christ, but the rest of mankind, God was pleased to pass by. And let me read to the whole section. It says this, The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will. That's a recognition. We're not going to get all this in our minds. We're not going to understand it all, but this is what it says. According to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. So the issue of sovereign election is God selecting some for salvation according to his sovereign mercy and leaving others in their sin, or dating them thus to die in their sin. Now, some question the language of and or dating them to dishonor and wrath. But you look at some verses. Look, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. This is really beyond the scope of tonight's message as well, but let's just take the time to look at these verses. 1 Peter chapter 2 and the verse number 8. This is referring again to the rejection of the Jews. They would not believe in their Messiah. And so Christ is a stone of stumbling, Psalm 118, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. Again, a recognition of God's sovereignty in, in leaving people to die in their sins. Then you've got Jude, verse 4. You can go across to Jude, verse 4. For there were certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Again, the emphasis of the sovereignty of God even towards those in their condemnation. My purpose tonight, though, is to emphasize that God's divine sovereign grace and election is not unjust because all humanity deserved to die in their sins, but God in His mercy for his own reason and for his own glory, chooses some in Christ to live forevermore. The London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689, it puts it this way, by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Again, similar language. All humanity seen as fallen in Adam, all deserving God's wrath and condemnation, 
but some chosen to life in Christ Jesus. Paul says, such an understanding of God's sovereignty renders the charge of God's injustice, injustice completely false. God is not unjust because God is sovereign in showing mercy to whom he shows mercy. 1,000 deserving God's wrath, and yet only 3,000 die in their sins. The mercy of God. And we then have to ask the question, why not more? Well, that is dealt with then in the wisdom and purpose of God in the life of Pharaoh. And so it continues. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose I've raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now, we dealt with verse 16 last week in terms of, of God's sovereignty and bringing souls to himself. It's God that shows mercy. But then he used this reference, verse number 17, for the scripture saith, and just by the way, an interesting side, God speaks in Exodus chapter 9, and yet Paul says, the scripture saith. The scripture says, God says. Paul sees the scripture and God as being equivalent in the language they use in the, in the Bible. Well, that's just by the way. What you see in verse number 18 then, he uses Pharaoh as example, and then verse 18 says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, verse 18 is expanding upon verse 15. Verse 15 only mentions mercy and compassion. And so the emphasis of verse 18 is not on the mercy, but on the additional section. Mercy is already dealt with, but he adds this extra section, verse 18, and whom he will, he hardeneth. And as God is sovereign in mercy, he is not only sovereign in mercy, but also in judgment as well. And to this end, verse 17, he has raised up Pharaoh. Now the reference there being raised up is used in the Old Testament of God's action to raise up individuals for a particular purpose. I think of Habakkuk chapter 1 where it says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. They're exalted in the world. They're given a prominence in the world for the purpose of God. They're, they're given power and authority. And so it was for Pharaoh. He's raised up to a position of power and authority for the very purpose of God to be realized. Pharaoh. You'll see, first of all, under Pharaoh, you will recognize God's choice to harden. I believe, and again, it's general thoughts, that when it says, whom he will, he hardened in verse 18, he is referring back to Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, there are 19 separate references to Pharaoh when hardening. Why people see something else as Pharaoh in verse 18, I do not know. It's referring to Pharaoh. Now, hardening, it refers to a rendering of Pharaoh insensitive to the commands of God. What happens? It's the plagues, isn't it? You know, young people, you know this. The plagues come. And Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'm not letting them go. And that's all in the context of Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So the hardening effect is, well, it is a sense of Pharaoh being rendered insensitive to the command of God. He hears the command, but he will not obey. It's a sense of him being stubborn in his determination to refuse the will of God. Hardening his heart against the commands of God. Rendering his heart insensitive to the obedience of God's will. Now, in this survey in Exodus... 19 different references to uh, Pharaoh being hardened in some way 
Ten of those references refer to God's act of hardening. Three of them refer to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And six of them refer in the passive tense to Pharaoh being hardened without determining whether it's God or himself. Okay, so it's three different ways to look at Pharaoh hardening his heart in Exodus. Ten times, God's act. Three times, self-hardening. And six times, he is being hardened. Let's look at these. Turn across to Exodus chapter 4 and the verse number 21. Exodus 4 and the verse number 21. This This is the first one. And it's one example of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return unto Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine heart, or sorry, I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. There's one example of God saying, I will harden his heart. Then what about self-hardening? Well, that's chapter 8 and the verse 15. Again, there are just three of these, but they are significant in terms of the plagues. The plagues come. Surely now, Pharaoh, you'll see that it's the will of God to let the people go. But no, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. And the consequence, and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. He hardened his own heart. And then, what about being hardened in a general sense? Well, chapter 8, verse 19, you got that. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And they were not told whether he hardened his own heart or whether God hardened his heart. It simply says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now what's Paul speaking of in Romans 9? He's referring to the sovereignty of God in showing mercy to those whom he shows mercy. And so by obvious conclusion... He is showing the sovereignty of God in his act of hardening Pharaoh's heart. The challenge to us tonight is, do we acknowledge God's sovereignty in hardening sinners? To many it's unpalatable. We're content with God having mercy to whom he shows mercy. But we struggle, and I know why we struggle more with the thought that God is sovereign in hardening of sinners. So there are people who have tried to understand this in various ways. Uh, One of the key ways to redefine this is to suggest, well, God only hardens Pharaoh in response to Pharaoh's self-hardening. So really what you're seeing here is, you're seeing God simply let Pharaoh be what he wants to be. God taking his hands off, you like God permitting Pharaoh to harden his own heart. And that's how some people see this. It doesn't do justice to the text. It doesn't do justice to the weight of the Bible's references here. Back to chapter 4, verse 21. The first reference in Exodus to Pharaoh's heart being hardened emphasized the sovereign act of God in this part. It says there, I will harden his heart. Indeed, before Pharaoh's self-hardening in chapter 8, chapter 7, verse number 3 says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So there are two references to God hardening Pharaoh's heart before Pharaoh himself is said to harden his own heart in chapter 8. But even beyond that, look at chapter 7, verse 13. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is, sorry, verse number 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Verse number 22. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. Chapter 8, verse 15, we read it. He hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Verse number 19. He hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. You see the emphasis here? God has predicted and promised that he will act in hardening Pharaoh's heart. So yes, Pharaoh is responsible. The fact that there are three references to Pharaoh hardening his own heart is an indication that while God is sovereign, Pharaoh is not without excuse. And he gladly hardens his heart against the will and purpose of God. But those three references do not dilute the fact that God is sovereign over his hardening. You see, in chapter 9 of Romans, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is parallel to the unconditional election of God in salvation. As election to salvation is unconditional, so this hardening is also an unconditional act of God's sovereignty. We delight in God's sovereignty unto salvation, but we should see here his sovereignty also in the hardening of sinners. Now, one other thing that people may say, well, God only hardens a Pharaoh. He only hardens the worst of sinners. A Pharaoh, a Hitler, or something like that. Only, only the very worst of sinners are going to be hardened by God. But, but turn across to Romans chapter 11. Because as Paul highlights again the issue of Jewish rejection. In verse number 7, Romans 11, he says this, What then Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. The word blinded there is different from the word for hardened in chapter 9. But the word blinded here can itself also be translated with the word hardened in our English. And so verse 8 says this, According as written, God hath given them eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. God's sovereignty in saving and condemning souls extends to all of lost humanity, not just to the pharaohs of this world. This is not easy. It's not popular. I imagine there are many churches in this nation that I preach this sermon and never preach again. I'm not asking for any self-congratulation. That's not my point. I'm, I, you folks have heard this before. This is not new from me tonight. But it's not popular. And yet, when you preach it this way, then you come to the objection of verse number 19. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? You see, Paul, as he expounds the sovereignty of God, he then brings this objection to his own position. Who can resist God's eternal will? If he's sovereign in election and sovereign in damnation, then how can we be charged as being at fault? Now, at this point, people today will say, well, that's easy. 
God finds fault with sinners because sinners, human beings, have ultimate self-determination and use it to rebel against God. So God's hardening is not unconditional, but it's caused by man's self-determined rejection of the gospel. Man is free. They have free will, and therefore God finds fault against them because of the freedom of their will. Why doesn't Paul say that? Paul, it's the most obvious answer, Paul. Use that answer, Paul, please. But he doesn't. Because it's not true. It's not the truth of God's character and God's will. Paul's point is that nothing in man explains why one is hardened and another shows mercy. Nothing in man explains the difference. All deserve to die. The fact that some live is only in the sovereign mercy of God. God is ultimately sovereign over all men. Or he's not sovereign at all. He's saved. He's sovereign of the saved and of the lost. And so we come to verse number 20. Nay, but O man, who art thou that replies against God? And we'll come and deal more with that in a future study. That's God's choice to harden. But secondly, note God's purpose in hardening. And I'm just going to highlight this and move on. We're given again in Romans 9 the purpose of God. Verse 17, for this same purpose, reason, have I raised thee up. Two purposes, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Two purposes. God is greater and stronger than Pharaoh and every false god. By his work in the plagues, he forces Pharaoh's hand to let the people go. He shows his power. Pharaoh, you're strong, but I'm stronger. Pharaoh, you've got authority, but I've more. It is the power of God manifest in this time. God raised up Pharaoh for this purpose that I might show my power in thee and through thee and over thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God does all things for his own glory. His name was declared throughout all the earth. Abundant proof of that, again, throughout the scriptures, the Psalms and other places. You think of, you think of Rahab and the, the situation when they come to, to Jericho. They have heard of the power of God over Pharaoh. They understand the power of God. His power is made known throughout all the earth. Sprawls this. Pharaoh could not have become the most powerful man in the world apart from the providential rule of God. And the purpose of God in establishing Pharaoh was to show God's power. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at this time. But when his power was brought to bear against the power of God, Pharaoh appeared impotent. And God's manifestation of his own authority reigned supreme. Why does God not show mercy on others, on more, on all, on Pharaoh? We're not always told why. We don't know why. Here we know why. We're told here. But other than that, who art thou, O man, that replies against God? This is sobering. Please, behold your God tonight and humbly worship God who is God.
worship him as God. The God of the Bible, the God of this world, the God who reigns supreme. Behold your God and humbly worship. Behold this world and take comfort. God is sovereign over the sinner. And God works out his purpose in them and through them. God's sovereignty did not end in Egypt. He is sovereign in Iran, in China, in Russia, in Gaza, in Israel, in Ukraine. He is sovereign over all people in all nations. And he is doing his good and perfect will in all of these things. Romans 9 should settle your heart when you're anxious about the purpose of God in this world. Behold your God, behold this world, and behold your own responsibility. I want to end here carefully. Because when it says in verse 19, why doth he yet find fault? The chapter ends this way. Verse 32, wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Romans 9 does not dilute the responsibility of sinners to believe the gospel, it does not give you an excuse to reject Christ tonight. If you harden your heart, you are guilty of gospel sin tonight. It is your duty before God to repent and believe the gospel. But if tonight you're worried, has my heart been hardened? And you're concerned regarding your eternal soul? If you're worried you've been hardened, you haven't been hardened. Your heart is still soft to the commands of God's law and the overtures of the gospel. If you're concerned about your soul tonight and you wonder, where do I stand before God? Do not search out your election. Search out Christ. He is willing and able to save. Believe. For whoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. Let's bow together, please, in the closing prayer. Eternal God, we come before thee confessing again the challenges in our minds regarding these things. I pray again for grace to simply take what the Bible says and accept that it's true. But if, dear Father, there are things said in error tonight, we pray that you would remove them from people's minds. May truth, may truth indeed reign supreme in the preaching of the Word of God in this pulpit and in the hearts of your people here. May we not believe a lie, but always hold fast the truth of your Word. Grant us grace. Again, we are, O oh Lord, we're so, so humbled. You saved us. You called us. Not because we chose or we ran, but because you sovereignly showed us mercy. How can it be? 
Help us, O oh God, to worship thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.